when the angels appeared to these shepherds, when the angels appeared to these shepherds keeping watch out in the field by night, and they say, Unto you is born this day in the city of David. City of David refers to Bethlehem, which is the place of Jesus' birth. And as our brother read just a moment ago from Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, that was the prophesied place where the Messiah was to be born, the one that was to be God's rescuer. And so when it says, Unto you is born this day in the city of David, it simply refers to his birth in Bethlehem, which was prophesied many years earlier. The fact that God told us before it happened demonstrates His sovereignty over all things. We do not know what tomorrow brings, but God not only knows what tomorrow brings, but God brings all of His intended purposes to pass for tomorrow. There's another verse in the Bible that says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3. That's the main significance of, of that part of the, the verse that we're focusing on tonight, Luke chapter 2 and verse 11. However, the main part of this verse that I want to emphasize tonight is that a Savior was born. Where He was born is not the, the main thing here. The fact that He was born is the main thing here. And the fact that a Savior was born implies that He came to save someone, or, or a bunch of people, or as the sermon goes on, I'll develop that, but it implies that there's some need of saving, some need of salvation for a savior, by definition, has to save from something, or he's not, in fact, a savior. So, a savior implies the need of saving, the need of salvation. Salvation from what? Well, as our brother read a couple moments ago from another chapter in Luke, Lostness. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That's what Jesus came to do. To seek and to save the lost. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three stories. The beginning of the chapter says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawn near to hear him. That is Jesus. The Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And what Jesus does is not to distance himself and say, Oh, no, no, they're not really my friends. I'm just, uh, I'm just trying to help them. You know, really, you religious people who are upset with me, you guys are my buddies, but I'm just reaching out to these tax collectors and sinners. Jesus doesn't respond that way. What he does is he tells three stories. He tells the story of a lost sheep. And he says that when the shepherd has found the lost sheep, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and he says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Then Jesus tells the story of a lost coin. And when she finds it, calls together her friends and neighbors saying rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I lost. And then he tells the famous parable of the prodigal son which most of us are probably familiar with 
where the son goes away into a far country, squanders all the money that he had gone with, ends up in the pigsty feeding the pigs, and he's so hungry himself that he wants to eat the pigs' food. But then he goes home to his father. So the father runs to the end of the driveway, and he welcomes the son home. And then he says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring in his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So there's a story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And when all of these lost things are found, there is great rejoicing. Jesus tells the stories to this effect. Luke 15 and verse 7, he says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or I, I would say, we think we need no repentance for all that sin and fall short of the glory of God. So what Jesus is doing in in telling those three stories, is he's actually doubling down on the fact that he loves and values and is friends with and rejoices to be with these tax collectors and sinners. Much to the chagrin and much to the scandal of the Pharisees and the scribes who don't think that he should be so friendly with such unrespectable people. Jesus tells these stories to, to, to double down. Like, yeah, they are my friends. And it brings me great joy to be with them and to bring them home, to find them. Right? But these, that's the effect of these three stories and their function in Luke 15. But these three stories also indicate to us that there are different types, or might I say different aspects of lostness. Let me walk you through these three different aspects of lostness. First, there is the lostness of what we might call foolishness or, or ignorance. A sheep is not a moral agent. Alright? A sheep is just a sheep. And when the sheep gets lost, it's not because he rebelled. It's not because he sat there and made a moral deliberation and a moral consideration and then acted with moral culpability to find himself on the other side of the hill, or the other side of the ravine, or whatever. Right? There is a lostness of foolishness and ignorance. We don't always do what we should. And let me say this. It's not always because we're just as hard-hearted as can be, and as rebellious as can be. We just make bad decisions a lot of the time. There's a little video circulating around on the internet and uh, it's a joke, of course, but it says, actual footage of Jesus rescuing me from my sins. And there's a, a shepherd who finds a sheep stuck headfirst in a very small crevice. And he pulls the sheep out by his legs. It's real footage of a shepherd pulling a sheep out. And he pulls the sheep out from the crevice. And the sheep starts frolicking gladly and then jumps right back into the crevice. This is the way we so often are. We're just, we're a bunch of bumbling fools so often. And there is a, a lostness that comes with that. We need to be rescued from our foolishness, from our ignorance. There's also 
lostness of what we might call victimization. The second story is about a coin. And a coin is even less culpable for getting lost than a sheep. Because a sheep may not have a really strong and well-functioning brain, but it does have one. A coin, on the other hand, has absolutely nothing going on inside. A coin is literally completely at the mercy of external forces. It doesn't have legs with which to wander away, and so on and so forth. Things happen to the coin. And the coin is a passive agent as things happen to it. What did you do to be, to be heartbroken over the, the effects of sin which ravaged this world? What did you do to be heartbroken over the death of someone that you love? What did you, what did you do to be heartbroken, heartbroken by, for example, a, a cancer diagnosis which was no, had no correlation to your lifestyle choices or whatever? You always wear sunscreen, you don't smoke, but here, go, 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 here it is. There is a reality that part of the lostness, part of our plight is something that happens to us. This world is broken and we experience the brokenness of the world, sometimes through no fault of our own. Sometimes we make foolish choices and end up getting ourselves into the thicket, into the brambling bush, into the briars. Sometimes through no fault of our own, lostness just happens to us. We're just, there's this aspect of our plight, being far from God, suffering, scared, in the dark, so on and so forth. Somehow we just ended up underneath the couch. And it was no fault of our own, it's just the way it is. There is an as a passive aspect to lostness, which the coin, by way of analogy, teaches us. Then there's a lostness of complete moral culpability and s profound self-centeredness. The son, the prodigal son, you know where he got all the money that he squandered? He asked his father for his inheritance early, before his father died. He said, listen, give me the share that's coming to me when you die. His father acquiesced and gave him that amount. And then the son left the father and went into this far country and squandered his inheritance. Now, that would be a profoundly disrespectful thing to do to your living parent, wouldn't it? Consider how self-centered the son was to go to his father with a request like this. He didn't care about his father, he cared about himself. And then he went off into the far country and squandered his inheritance. We don't actually know with what. There are guesses that theologians make, but um, the details are not put to us. Most likely, though, is the, it was the gratification of his desires, whatever those might be. It's not as if he went into the far country and gave all the money to charity. It's not as if he went over into the far country and tried to start up a responsible business with which he intended to send back support for his aging father. He went into the far country and squandered his money, we're told, wasted it in self-indulgence. There's a profound self-centeredness which causes 
the prodigal son to get lost. And he is morally culpable for the lostness that he finds himself in. All of us have some degree of all three of these aspects of lostness as we consider our life. We are not yet in a perfect, uncursed world, free from the effects and the ravages of sin, dwelling with God in a place where He Himself is the light, as Revelation 21 and 22 tells us we one day will be. We are not yet there. Right now we're far from God, as it were. And part of the reason that we got there was because we sinned. Adam, our first father, sinned. He broke God's law. That's what sin is. It's doing what you should not do, failing to do what you should. In theological language from the Catechism, it says, sin is a transgression of or lack of conformity unto God's law. And Adam sinned. He transgressed God's law. He did what he ought not to have done. He also actually left undone things that he should have done. He had a job to do as the first man, and he did not do it. And so we are culpable. The human race didn't just simply end up in the state we're in by no fault of our own. We messed it up. We, in Adam, rebelled against God. We, standing in his place, would have done the same thing that Adam did. He is our representative. He acts for us. And the consequences of what he did are counted as if we had done that same thing. So we are all considered guilty in God's eyes, culpable for sin. And we know that we all do sin personally, don't we? We've all done what we should not have done. We've all failed to do what we should have done. So arguments about theoretically if you had been in Adam's place are pretty much answered. Right? When we consider the fact that we're very much inclined away from God. And look at, like, we can't say, well, I would have had a better heart than Adam when we see just how bad our hearts are. Right? There is a profound self-centeredness that characterized Adam in the beginning. That characterizes us. We are culpable for that. We've sinned against God. We deserve God's wrath because of the moral culpability, the responsibility that we bear for sin. There is also lostness of just foolishness and ignorance. The reality is that we just don't always know how to live. We just, we often do just make a mess of our lives because we don't know. The Bible gives us different different categories for wrongdoing and different categories, different degrees of culpability for wrongdoing. If you read through the Proverbs, there's there's the fool, there's the simpleton, you know, and sometimes we're just simple, we just not been taught, we don't know, we make bad choices, we mess up, we screw things up in our lives, and again, you can look at yourself and be like, not only have I sinned, but sometimes it's like I'm not, you know, willfully disobeying, but I just realize now, looking back, I've done some dumb stuff. That's part and parcel of the way you've lived. And then the reality is, some of the suffering and alienation 
like the experience of, of being far from God in this sin cursed world that we experience is not there's no direct cause of our own. A, a tsunami hits a place. It's not it's not because the people there did something necessarily. I mean it could be, just as God has sent natural disasters in Bible times for various reasons. But we don't believe that that's always the case. Sometimes it's just literally there was an earthquake in the sea, and this is the way it happened. Sometimes, uh, you know, it's not like if you get cancer, it's not automatically, it shouldn't be your assumption. Well, I must have sinned. That's why I got cancer. The reality is that like, things just happen to us. It's just, we're not morally culpable for every bit of living in a sin cursed world that we experience, that we lament, and that we sorrow for. Right? People die, things happen. It hurts. And sometimes it's through no fault of our own. All of this is our experience of lostness here in this sin-cursed world far from God. We're under the couch, so to speak, like a coin that a woman can't find. We're on the other side of the ravine, so to speak, like a sheep that has foolishly wandered away from the shepherd. And we're in a far country in the pigsty, like the culpable son who has rebelled. You can see that this is these. This is a threefold way in which we are all lost, far from God. Back to Luke two eleven, it says, "Unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord." Jesus came to save from what lostness, this plight that we're in, this threefold lostness, being like a coin under the couch through no fault of its own. Being like a sheep on, on the other side of the ravine because it made dumb choices. Being in the pigsty because of rebellion, outright wickedness, and self-centeredness. We are lost in these ways, but Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Unto you. Unto who? Everybody who needs to be saved. Unto you is born this day a Savior. Are you feeling the pain, of lostness, of not being in heaven, of life after the fall, where things here are broken and messed up? Do you recognize, yeah, I'm like that coin, yeah, I'm like that sheep, I'm like that son? Listen, good news, unto you is born a Savior. Unto you is born a Savior. There's someone who came to rescue you from these things. Jesus came to live righteously in our place. We have been like that son who took his father's inheritance in pure self-centeredness and went and squandered it. We have been profoundly curved in on ourselves, an old theologian said. We have acted in ways that are disrespectful to God. We've acted in ways that prioritize our own self-gratification above all else, leading us to transgress God's law and fail to conform to it where it had positive duties. And Jesus came to live differently than that. Jesus came to live in a way that honors God, in a way that conforms to His law and all of its positive requirements, in a way that refrains from transgressing it in terms of its prohibitions. Jesus lived that way so that he could credit us as our representative, could credit us his righteousness, 
give it to us as if it was ours. So just as Adam's sin was credited to us, counted as if it was ours, Christ's righteousness is counted to us as if it was ours when we believe in Christ Jesus. Likewise, Jesus came to die in our place as our representative to bear the punishment that we deserve for our wrongdoing. To bear the wrath of God in our place so that His death would be counted as if it was ours. John's sin is already punished. But when was John punished? No, no, no. John wasn't punished. Jesus was punished for John. That's how Jesus' death on the cross works. That He lives in our place and gives us His righteousness. That He dies in our place and gives us His death as a word. And then Jesus rose from the dead. And by faith in Him, His righteousness becomes ours. His penalty-bearing death is counted as if it was ours. So by faith in Him, we are justified with, by God, which means we're made right with Him. And then our hope is that as Christ was raised, so we will also be raised. So Jesus saves us from this profound self-centeredness. And He gives us His Word and His Spirit to guide us and to help us with our foolishness and our ignorance. Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Again, Psalm 119, your word is like a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus is rescuing us from the foolishness and ignorance that leads us into bad decisions. And Jesus is one day going to fix this world. And he's going to wipe away every tear from our eye. And he's going to rescue us then from the lostness of victimization. The lostness of simply being in a broken world. The lostness of things happening to us apart from our moral culpability. Jesus is going to raise all of his people from the grave. And he's going to make this world new. He's going to live with us forever. And his dwelling place will be with us. There will be no more mourning, no more tears, no more crying for the former things shall have passed away. And so we're not always going to be like lost coins. We're not always going to be like lost sheep. We're not always going to be like lost sons. You know why? Because unto you is born a Savior. Who is that Savior? Not your own willpower. As if you can just save yourself from being a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son. It's no church. It's no priest, no guru. No one who can be a savior to you, but Christ the Lord. Unto you is born a savior. Who is he? Christ the Lord. Light and life to all he brings. Born that man no more may die. Glory to the newborn king.